0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Michael Berry, an expert on Chinese film and literature, director of the UCLA Center for Chinese Studies, and acclaimed literary translator. I had the pleasure of chatting with Michael seven years ago about the uniquely important window that cultural products play in framing China's place in the world. But suffice it to say that my recent discussion with him in early 2022 after his rapid English translation of Fang Fang's pioneering COVID-19 Chronicle, Wuhan Diary, resulted in him receiving a flood of online death threats, was considerably less academic and more personal. Let me pick it up, if I may, on some of the comments that you made in, in our recent filming session. You spoke revealingly about how, while many Americans as we've turned the page from the Trump administration and a lot of the nationalistic anti-Chinese rhetoric has been toned down, that nonetheless, in the minds of many people in China, that still lingers. And I think, if I can paraphrase you, so obviously jump in if I'm, if I'm misspeaking, but my sense was that there is a lack of appreciation amongst many Americans to some extent, how much damage that was done and also the need to, I guess, formally walk some of that back and make statements about how it was inappropriate to have uh, demonized China to some extent. And there's a lack of understanding or awareness or appreciation of just the amount of damage that has occurred in the hearts and minds of many people in China. So, first of all, is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? And then uh, my second question, assuming that you say more or less, uh, but I'm going to let you respond nonetheless, is to say, well, what should be done? Like, how could we diffuse or, or progress or ameliorate the situation?
1: You know, there's so much that needs to be done. Some of it on the political level. I think that the current administration really doesn't have a solid, cohesive policy for how to deal with and engage with China. Uh, the former president had a strategy, which was, I think, a very dark strategy. I mean, he had Peter Navarro, who um, I don't know if you would consider him a China specialist. He's written books on China, but he was extremely hawkish and extremely aggressive. And I think he he actually wrote a book and produced a film called "Death by China" at one point. And so you can tell by <laughs> just by the title <laughs> where uh, where that kind of took us. The current administration, on the other hand, I don't think he has any really solid advisors close to him that have a path forward in terms of their China policy. So they need to develop a strategy, a path forward. Right now, it just feels like it's on autopilot. And many of the things that were unleashed during the Trump administration have not been pulled back. They have not been really addressed. So that's number one. But besides political policies, it's also really crucial that you have educational policies to engage with China. China is the most populous country in the world. It is uh, the you know one of the, the great superpowers now and one of the largest economies in the world. They have been one of our largest trading partners for many years now. And there is an utter lack of basic understanding of Chinese history, culture, language, economics, uh, society amongst, I would say, mainstream America. And I often give the example, you could go to any college in China and just ask random students questions and ask them, who's Abraham Lincoln? Who is George Washington? Who is, you know,
0: just- just, just Martin Luther King, presumably. Martin
1: Luther King. And it doesn't even have to be political figures. You could even ask them if they've ever heard of, uh, you know, Emerson or Mark Twain. They'll all- able to tell you who those figures are. They might not have read their essays, but they they can tell you who they are. But the challenge is you walk around American college campuses and ask students at random, who is Sun Yat-sen? Who is Chiang Kai-shek? Who is Lu Shun? You're going to get blank faces and just blind stares. And and what that points to is this fundamental, I mean, we talk about the trade war, the trade imbalance, but I think much deeper is the cultural imbalance, the lack of Americans' willingness to step outside of their own little box that they're in and really make the extra effort to understand other countries, other languages. And that in turn, I mean, the reason you can have this kind of diplomatic tension and all of the demonization and name calling that plays out is because people really don't understand who that other is. And so I think a lot of it starts with education. And I think we're really at a deficit in terms of our understanding of China and, I mean, the number of Americans who study Chinese or speak Chinese, it pales in comparison to the number of Chinese that are not only learning English, but mastering English from a very young age. And I think a lot of that stems from America's long-standing place as the kind of hegemonic big daddy on the block who feels he want to talk to us. You learn our language. You learn our culture. And you come to us, but you know empires don't last forever, and you can see the waning power of American influence globally very clearly. And I think it's time for people to wake up a little bit and start being a little more uh, more humility and taking the time to learn about other cultures and other languages instead of just expecting everybody to come to us.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, two two points to pick up on. The first is, for me, very often there is a conflation between. Economic or military hegemony and appreciation of different cultures and different places to live. I mean, for example, there is this sense that if you have the biggest army, or if you have the, the greatest economy by whatever metrics, you know, purchasing power parity, uh, per capita, or however you, you, you want to measure these things, or how many toys your average citizen can buy, or whatever it is that you want to have that you necessarily have the best quality life or that you are number one. And then there are all these scare stories, you know, America's uh, in danger of losing their dominance and becoming number, number two or number three or whatever it is. Economists love to talk about this. One of the many reasons why I try not to listen to economists on a regular basis. But if you actually look at some other places, I mean, if you were to examine what your average citizen of Norway, for example, is doing in her life. Or you look at your average citizen of Germany or what have you. These people have very nice, (laughs) positive, fulfilled, flourishing lives. They don't consider themselves in any way to be living in suboptimal circumstances because they don't have the world's number one economy or anything like that. It's a very odd way to measure your life and not only your own personal sense of flourishing, but even how your country is doing on nationalistic grounds. It's a very curious metric that I think to some extent people are being force fed. So there's that. And certainly I'm happy to have you comment on that. But one of the things I really wanted to ask is, so I'm I'm very happy to hit on American parochialism and and I'm sure I'll continue to do that for a while, but I want to look at things in the other direction as well because it does take two to tango. And there is, of course, invective, which comes from China in terms of looking at the Chinese government and some of the propaganda that comes out against the United States. And I wondered to what extent the pandemic had exacerbated that or minimized that. I want to get to Wuhan Diary, as you know, later on. But there were some moving scenes when Fang Fang talks about the spontaneous donation of masks from the city of Pittsburgh and from other places in the United States when things were very, very bad in Wuhan? And did any of that have any effect in terms of softening things or at least making things less vitriolic and uh, reducing the the geopolitical tension at least for a while?
1: Yeah. Well, let me just backtrack a little and start with the first part of your question when you were talking about what the economic power of a nation means to the quality of living and and, and of course you know what, one tricky part of that equation is the disparity between the haves and the have-nots the rich and the mm. poor and so although countries like america have these powerhouse economies if you have this radical disparity with you know people in the one percent making i don't know what percentage the current calculation is so you know that can have radical implications for what that really means right and in concrete terms, for people's quality of lives. And so I think that's just a, a really crucial part of the equation that a lot of people maybe don't factor in. But in the context of China, and getting back to the core of your question here, I think at the very early stages of the outbreak in Wuhan, there actually was a great reservoir of goodwill coming from the world towards China. There was a lot of outreach and outpouring of donations, of sympathy, of help, I mean, here, right here at UCLA, I had students that were doing drives to raise money to buy PPE and send it to Wuhan. And that was happening in cities all around the world, often spearheaded by international Chinese students who were studying here in the U.S. I saw that happening at campuses all over. And ironically, it was in part one of the reasons we had such a shortage of PPE when the pandemic came to U.S. shores, because all of the in-stock masks and gloves had already been shipped off to China. And so it was kind of an irony the way all of that played out. But I think there was really a lot of goodwill. And then it was when the pandemic started to spread globally that we started to see the discourse shift. You start to see Donald Trump using kind of disparaging words to characterize the virus. So you hear China virus, Chinese virus, Kung flu. He starts talking about making China pay, quote unquote the government in India starts talking about reparations from China for unleashing this virus upon them. And you start getting this kind of discourse setting in, and that starts putting things on a much darker path vis-a-vis how it's framed in international relations. And then this the heat just gets continually turned up. And so once the US starts making these claims China responds by having their foreign ministry spokesperson, Zhao Jin make a statement alluding to the fact that during the military games, which is an annual event that was held in Wuhan in, I believe, November or December of 2019, that the American military actually had smuggled the virus into Wuhan and they had unleashed it on the world. And it was actually extremely conspiratorial in terms of the way these are framed. But what happens is, it becomes a kind of tit for tat. And then they each are trying to outdo the other in terms of who's who. It's a blame game, essentially. And once this is set in motion, it's very hard to undo that. And I don't think we're even, we're out of that today. And so it's quite unfortunate the way in which a virus, which does not see race, religion, geographic or national distinctions, but somehow became politicized in such a powerful way that it actually turned nations against one another. And I think that's as bad as the death toll and the human toll of all those people who were sick and had family members die during the virus. This is a kind of secondary tragedy that was unleashed by COVID-19.
0: Yeah. As I told you earlier, one of the things that particularly irked me was this whole idea of, did the virus escape from, from a laboratory in Wuhan investigation. Because unlike many things that are circulating around, this wasn't just limited to completely crackpot theories and social media. You had high-ranking political officials, you had congressional inquiries, you had serious, or at least what should have been, serious members of the establishment spending their time investigating this. And, Here's my take on this. So let me just give you uh, my take and then ask you whether you agree or disagree or to comment on it yourself. So my take was, was twofold. So at first you think, well, okay, that's not unreasonable. If you have something which is such a debilitating, terrible uh, situation, then you want to be investigating what happened with the idea that obviously you you wanna take whatever precautions necessary to minimize the likelihood of it happening again in the future. So that ostensibly is a reasonable thing to be doing. But there are two very significant provisos that come into one's head if you've spent any time thinking about this whatsoever. The first is that if you're going to make a serious meaningful inquiry into the origins of a particular biomedical issue, say, then for it to have any credibility whatsoever, it has to be rigorously objective and it can't be seen to be a political football. And very clearly, one way to do that is you have an international inquiry where you have all parties participating equally. And this is clearly not what's going on when you have a bunch of people in one country or one group of countries that are tossing around these various theories themselves. So that alone invalidates the whole notion of the, of the investigation. And the second factor is, it's obviously manifestly a political argument when you recognize that even if it were the case, and I don't think there's any evidence, but I don't really care one way or the other, and I haven't been following it very closely, but let's just imagine for the sake of argument that it turns out that this was some kind of an accident from a military weapons laboratory or something like that. Again, I'm not suggesting that it is, I don't know, but let's just suppose for the sake of argument that it was. Even in that case, it's clearly insane to imagine that this was deliberate on the part of uh, the Chinese people, given what incredible hardship and damage that it wrought. And secondly, if you're sitting in the United States or in Poland or in Australia or wherever the heck you are, any study that you have into best practices or worst practices or what happened is not ever going to have any implication whatsoever. You're not actually in charge of any regulation. You can't impose that just as a Chinese inquiry about United States, uh, you know, weapons grade plutonium treatment isn't going to have any impact whatsoever on an American military establishment. So clearly, the whole thing is just a vain political exercise that is oriented towards increasing tension and scapegoating and diverting people from their present issues. So that's the way I read it from my very detached/slash ignorant perspective in yet another country. Is there anything to that? How would you respond to that? Would you agree or disagree with that analysis? You know, this whole issue
1: of the origins of the virus is an extremely complicated and sensitive so sensitive to the point that I've never made any public statement about the origin of COVID-19 one way or another, and I don't feel I'm qualified to really do so. But I've been attacked. <laughs> I think later we'll talk about yeah. these online attacks. But the issue of the origins of COVID-19 actually has been one of the key issues that I've been attacked for, for more than 18 months. And I'm someone who hasn't said a word about it. And so <laughs> it just shows how how high the stakes are on this issue. I think Part of the reason we have these conspiratorial theories running rampant about it is, one, there certainly is to some degree a, a lack of transparency, at least during the early phase of the outbreak in China. I, I think we we know that pretty well. During the first month or so, there were a lot of things that were not being revealed in a timely fashion. There was information that was not being transmitted. And, and then there's just the coincidence that one of the largest labs in the world that studies and does research on coronaviruses, novel coronaviruses is in Wuhan. And so I think those two issues together helped light the fire for an incredible array of conspiracy theories that have taken on all kinds of shapes and forms. You know, I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm a scholar of literature and film, so I'm certainly not in a position to comment on the the scientific Origins of COVID nineteen, like you said, it's hard to imagine that this was intentionally designed and unleashed for some kind of political purposes. Is it possible it was a lab leak, an accident? Uh, I think that's certainly a possibility. Is it possible that it jumped from an animal species to humans? Certainly, that's probably, according to most scientific reports I've read, that's the most likely scenario. Yeah. Will we ever know? I think that's highly unlikely because of the political stakes that are... There. And even if even if we have a team, like in 2021, uh, the World Health Organization actually sent a team to Wuhan to investigate the origins of COVID-19. Yeah. Even when you have these authoritative teams that are presenting reports, because of the lack of availability of certain information or interview subjects, I don't know if we'll ever have all of the pieces to the puzzle in place. That said, what we do know is that the way in which the discourse around the origins of COVID-19 were harnessed and politicized was certainly done so so certain political players could gain certain benefits. Like in the U.S., we were falling on our face in terms of the handling of COVID-19. I mean, talk about dropping the ball again and again and again. I mean, from the failed rollout of test kits early on, which allowed a window for the virus to spread unbeknownst to so many people, to the lack of any federal policies of masks and quarantines until much, I think they were way too slow in terms of implementing those kind of policies. But it was just one failure after another after another. And one way to distract from that is to blame China. Look at what China did. And so I think we saw a lot of that happening vis-a-vis the, this this discourse around the origins of COVID-19. But, uh, I, I mean, we're going to get to Wuhan Diary later, but, you know, the original subtitle of the book, right now it's Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from a Quarantine City. The original subtitle the publisher gave it, not the author, was Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from the Original Epicenter, which to my ears sounded fine. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any controversy that the first major site of a COVID-19 outbreak was in Wuhan, China. However, the detractors from the book immediately latched onto the word original and said the root of that word is origin and you're using this book to make a political statement about the origin of COVID-19 and hence a whole wave of conspiratorial attacks were unleashed on the diary from that context. So it just shows you how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of the sensitivity behind this word origin in China.
0: Okay. I'm going to try to say a few more words about this, and I, and I, I, I say this somewhat hesitantly, hence my stumbles, because I don't want to get you into trouble, and you've already admitted that this is something that people are bizarrely attacking you about and that you haven't commented on it. And perhaps I'm just being insensitive, or maybe it's the fact that I, I don't live in the United States and I'm not on social media, and so'm clearly I'm not fully cognizant of the different levels of the inferno to which these sorts of uh, discussions, let's say to use a charitable word, tend to go. But I look at this quite straightforwardly. I mean, look, there's no doubt whatsoever that, that the virus originated, and I'm sorry to use that word, but it, I could use another word, uh, began, commenced, was first detected in the city of Wuhan. I don't think that there are any reasonable, reputable people who deny that today, two years after the fact. I don't think too many people denied it at the time. That is to say in the early days of, of the outbreak. And, and so I'm not only thinking about my recollections of all of the, the media reports, but also Wuhan Diary, of course. So there's a general acknowledgement from, I think we can say pretty well most sane people or let's just say all sane people, that that was where the virus was first detected, this new novel coronavirus. So that's point number one. My point with mentioning this, this whole escape from a lab is the idea that we don't know exactly how, and I don't think we will probably ever know, but let's just be charitable and let's say it's uncertain how this virus began. But I think you would again have to be and I'm choosing my words carefully. Insane to assume that the unleashing of this virus was deliberate on the part of anybody. I think to imagine that the Chinese government engineered, or the municipal government of Wuhan, or, or the, the 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 central hospital, or you know any of these things deliberately unleashed this virus into the populace. I think to believe that you are beyond the realm of sane discourse. Agreed. <laughs> so then what I follow that up with is, well, when we're in the middle of a raging pandemic, to be spending all your time and effort or a substantial amount of time and effort in grappling with the origins, the specific origins of this issue, when we have so many other pressing concerns, when there is a significant number of people who are, my God, they are, they are unvaccinated When we actually have vaccines, when there is a a, a tremendous issue with global inequality in terms of access to such vaccines, when there are so many more pressing issues at stake to be oriented towards addressing first causes at this particular time, even in an international way, let alone in a a rogue, one-nation way of... Holding meetings and trying to establish it is so obviously inappropriate and so obviously politically motivated. And then when you add to that the idea that even if you could establish, which of course you're not going to be able to do under the circumstances, but even if you could establish that there were some poor practices that came into effect or there should be some better regulatory guidelines or what have you, there's no way you could unilaterally impose them on another sovereign nation anyway it's absurd. So that, that's my point. My point is that clearly it's politically motivated, and it's politically motivated in the most distasteful way because it's posing as trying to rationally and reasonably approach a core problem using evidence-based approaches. But it's nothing like that at all. In fact, it's it's clearly just a way of scapegoating and channeling anger. And that's that's deeply distressing to me when I see it. And I think it should be pointed out. And I'm not suggesting that I'm the only person who's pointing this out or, or that I'm the person to be pointing it out or anything like that. But I think reasonable people should point it out. So, that's, so I'm pointing it out. I
1: agree with the core of a lot of what you said. I do feel there still is, from a scientific perspective, right? We learn from our mistakes. We learn about future viruses from studying current viruses. And so I do think there is a, a place for scientists to try to figure out how this began for a way to, we can move forward and try to prevent or curb future outbreaks like this, at the same time, the way it has been framed, like you indicated, has been overtly political, politicized, and most of it had a really nasty tinge to it. By the same token, because of that, it's also become somewhat overdetermined. And what, what like I, a few moments ago, I talked about, even even this diary, the original subtitle being somehow pulled into this controversy when it has nothing to do with, you've read the diary, yeah. You know, it has nothing to do with the origins of the virus. Yeah. And so it shows in w- the ways in which uh, this discourse has been become so overemphasized and overdetermined that it's kind of overwhelmed the other aspects. And like you said, other things that we should be focusing on and that are so much more important, like vaccines and, and the politicization itself of the virus. I think that's become uh, an issue equally destructive as COVID-19 itself. I mean, look at the rise in extremism and the the right wing in America, and not just America, but I mean, the era of COVID-19 has also kind of corresponded with the era of the rise of dictators globally. And so it's quite interesting and terrifying to see the ways in which these trends have overlapped and fueled one another.
0: Yeah. At the end of Wuhan Diary, Fang Fang does talk about, she does compare and contrast, as, as many people have uh, subsequently, but she compares and contrasts explicitly the international collaboration amongst the medical community, the biomedical community, and I've had the opportunity through this project to talk to many people, and it's a fairly common refrain that one of the positive aspects of this crisis has been, maybe not to an optimal extent, but to a very large extent, The coming together of the international scientific establishment, the sharing of information, the working together, that's acknowledged from many quarters. And Fang Fang talks, uh, she contrasts that with the politicization, which even then, I can't remember exactly when it was, I guess it was late March, early April or whatever in that period, even then the politicization is starting a little bit. But she she talks, I remember specifically, she talks about a, a doctor whom she had interacted with whom she says is normally has a bit of an anti-American slant but he was very impressed by what had been what was going on at uh, Massachusetts General or Harvard or I can't remember exactly where it was and there was a, there's a real sense of the scientific community working together in contrast to even then the growing drumbeat of politicization of this and so um, let me move on if I may to Wuhan diary itself let me talk about a few things that I learned, or at least that changed my perspective from it. And I'm curious to know to what extent this is general, because I'm sure you've had a lot of feedback from a lot of different quarters about this. There's a general sense from the, I guess, standard knee-jerk Western perspective. When you think about China, you think of one party state, you think totalitarian state, you think censorship, human rights violations, these are the sorts of things that, that are normally associated from a Western perspective with China. And one of the things that was very interesting and revealing to me when I read Wuhan Diary was the degrees of subtlety that began to emerge in that characterization. So specifically, here you have an author who's an acknowledged author, who's a celebrated author in China. She is clearly a brave individual, and she is very forthright in her determination, increasingly so as the book progresses, to denounce the individuals, either individually or at an organizational level, who are responsible for not having dealt with the disease earlier, who gave false information, who didn't alert the citizens, and so forth. So here you have somebody who is aware of censorship. She is herself being subjected to censorship, yet she is not only speaking truth to power, but and here's where the subtleties really begin to get interesting for me. She is not uh, calling for the overthrow of her government. She is not somebody who is saying that we necessarily have to have American style democracy or anything like that. What she is pointing out is she is pointing out the inadequacies and the inappropriate behavior that some people have invoked in the organization. And she is herself talking about how the government of China should take action. And she is pointing out to the documents and the rule of law within China that they should be able to take action. So she is saying China is a country that respects the rule of law. These people have broken the law, and therefore they should be held accountable and they should be punished in accordance with that law. And so it's a, it's a very, very different and much more nuanced interpretation of what's going on than I, as I guess your standard Westerner, would have naively believed. So my, so I've rambled for quite a while. I'm eventually coming to a question. As you know, it takes me a little while to get there sometimes. So my question is this, to what extent is my bemusement, my initial bemusement, or at least my, my appreciation of that, that nuanced, more subtle version, uh, how characteristic is that? Did you get that from a lot of people saying, wow, I didn't quite appreciate that things are are much more subtle and much more nuanced and you can have somebody who is an established uh, literary figure who is herself saying things like, I took these guys who were defamatory to court before and I'll take them to court again, that she believes in the rule of law in her country. She re- obviously recognizes that her country isn't perfect, like like all we all recognize that our countries aren't perfect, but that... She does believe that she lives in a country that supports the rule of law, and she is framing all of her arguments in that context, and she is portraying her enemies as enemies of the government, these ultra-leftists, as enemies of the reform movement in China that the current government represents. So... I was shocked by that. I was at least very surprised by that. And I thought, wow, things are much more complicated or much more nuanced than I had appreciated. Is that a common reaction? Did a lot of people say that sort of thing to you? And to what extent do you think Wuhan Diary itself was an intriguing and effective vehicle for educating Westerners about these nuances?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it really depends on who the reader is, how that person is situated, if they're American, if they're liberal, if they're conservative, if they're Chinese, where their political leanings are. Because what she's doing is quite complex in the sense that she is of the system, she's part of the establishment. For much of her later career, she actually served as the chair of the Hubei Writers Association, which is an official government organization. It's what some people would call a cadre, you know, and so. And that also plays into how she was later attacked. And we, we can get into that because later on, when some of these attacks would claim that she was entitled, that she was removed from the reality that everyday people were going through because she was living in this kind of political bubble, so to speak. But what she does is she uses the system and she uses the legal language and she uses her knowledge of how things work in China politically to get things done to exact change and to push her agenda forward. And so some people who haven't read the diary have the impression, oh, she's like a dissident writer or she's somebody who, like you implied, maybe she's trying to call for the overthrow of the Chinese government. You would think that the disinformation campaign unleashed against her that she must have done something terrible like that. But if you actually read the diary, it's quite mild in that sense that she's calling for very measured, reasonable items to be carried out. At the same time, some of those things are quite explosive within the Chinese context. For instance, when she starts talking about censorship very early on, the very first entry, she's already talking about censorship. And at one point in the middle of the diary, she actually directly addresses the censors and says, my dear internet censors, let us speak. You know, We're quarantined. We're locked down. We're all frustrated. We're scared. We're lonely. You need to at least give us an outlet to talk. That's quite remarkable in China, because in China, not only is there heavy censorship, but even discourse about censorship is censored. And so you can't even talk about it in an open, clear, transparent way. And here she is in a very public forum, right, Weibo or WeChat, where she had, at the height of her powers, so to speak, more than 50 million people every day logging in and reading these. So I I mean, all told, hundreds of millions of people must have read portions of this diary. And she's using that as a space to kind of exact a more liberal, open, transparent civil society in China and bring that about for her and her compatriots. And so those segments are quite remarkable that she was able to do that. And, and she did that by playing cat and mouse with the internet censors and using friends accounts to blast these out, people forwarding them. And there was a very kind of creative way in which her message was amplified and got out to various people. But you're right that uh, there are some detractors, besides the people who attack her for what she said, there's also detractors out there who think she didn't go far enough, that she was too tame and too timid in what she was asking for, and that she should have been a stronger voice for change. And so you really have responses that run run the gamut, and it's hard to find a single pulse on how, how this work was received. But I think it, it's really core. What was most interesting about it is the fact that since around 2014, 2015, Xi Jinping and the Chinese central government started enacting a series of policies that were effectively reeling in the space for cultural discourse. It was getting smaller and smaller. What you could say, publish, make a film about uh, in 2020 was very different than what you could do in 2013. It had gone backwards in, in the eyes of most, I think, artist friends that I know. They have books that they can't publish today that they would have had no problem publishing you know, a decade ago. And so the space has been retracting, and that's led to a certain tension beneath the surface of society that's been percolating between the conservatives who are completely on board with Xi Jinping's policies and feel that this is in the best interest of the nation, and more, more liberal-minded individuals that want more transparency, they want more openness. What happened with Fang Fang's diary, it became a conduit or almost a Rorschach test for readers to articulate their political affiliations. And so you had families that weren't talking to each other because the kids were in support of Fang Fang and the parents were more conservative. And they thought, no, this should be banned. This is terrible. Uh, Friends who had stopped talking to each other. I mean, there were all of these tensions that this brought to the surface because it really became a litmus test for what kind of society do people in China want? A more liberal, transparent society or a more hard-lined, authoritarian society where anything that goes against or even criticizes certain government policies or could even possibly be used used by – I mean, one, one of the big uh, – <laughs> One of the big lines of attack against Wuhan Diary was it was passing the knife, quote-unquote. It was handing the knife over to America that would then be used to punish China, to hurt China. This was kind of the smoking gun, so to speak. And so those people who signed on to that conspiratorial line of thinking felt that this was a dangerous book that was going to be used by America, that one day Donald Trump would go to a press conference and hold it up and say, here it is, here's the evidence. And they felt that this book needed to be destroyed at all costs. Uh, It was a matter of national security. This is how they framed it.
0: Let me ask you to talk a little bit about how you got involved. I know you've written about this in different op-eds and different pieces. You have your translators afterward in the the book itself. But I think it would be helpful for you just to give a little precis of, of how you got involved and how that process unfolded for you as translating, because I know it was very intense and, and in many ways, as you wrote, very surreal, and then aspects of the aftermath. So yeah. perhaps if you can just describe that, that would, I think, be wonderful.
1: So I've, actually, I still haven't met Fang Fang face to face. All of our interactions have been via emails, texts, but we started communicating around, must have been 2017 or 2018, where our first text messages back and forth. And a mutual friend introduced us who thought I would be a good candidate to translate a novel that Fang Fang wrote called Soft Burial. The novel deals with historical trauma, which is a subject I've written about. I wrote a book called The History of Pain, which explored trauma in Chinese uh, film and literature. I've translated many other novels that deal with historical trauma. And so she thought it would be a subject that I would might be drawn to. And I read the novel, and I was really taken by it. And I agreed to translate this. I started uh, in 2019. I finally began translating it. And I actually got a fellowship from the National Endowment of the Arts, a translation fellowship, to support that translation. That came a little later. But I started translating the novel, and that was the basis of our relationship. It was an author-translator relationship. Mm -hmm. And then early 2020 comes, COVID-19. I start seeing the news. And Fang Fang Is from Wuhan. She's lived her whole life since the age of two in that city. Most of her novels are actually a lot of them are historical fiction set in the city of Wuhan. So she's kind of come to become identified with that city. So one of the first things that I thought of was Fangfang when when this happened, and I just would text her and ask her, "Are you doing okay? I heard what's happening. Hope you're safe. Hope your family's safe." You know, and she would tell me, "You know, she's fine. Thanks for checking in." And we exchanged a few texts like that. I didn't even realize. That she had started this blog. I would see her uh, Weibo page, or, which is the Chinese equivalent of like Twitter or Facebook, you know, and I would see her posts, but I didn't realize, I didn't open them all up and read the whole text. I would just, you know, glance at them and I read a little bit. And, and then one day I was speaking to a colleague of mine on the phone, and he said, I'm so glad you're doing Soft Burial. that's such an important book. It's like, but have you seen this blog she's writing about the pandemic? I just said I said I glanced at it, but I really haven't looked. He's like, you should really take a close look at that. And that night, I opened up the blog, and I read two installments, one or two, not you know, probably a couple thousand words. And I immediately texted Fong and I said, you know what? Why don't we put Soft Burial aside, and I would like to translate your blog, and well, let's do a book like a pandemic diary. And she responded and said, you know, I'm flattered, but you know, I'm still writing this thing. It's not even finished. And the pandemic is still ongoing. I don't know how long this is going to go on. I don't know how long this blog is going to go on. It's just premature. So let's just put this on hold and we'll revisit that. In the next week, this blog continued to, it was going viral already, but it started to explode. So the, the, the number of clicks started to go from a few million, to 10 million, the 30 million, the 50 million, it was just becoming an international phenomena among Chinese speakers, not just in Wuhan, not just in China, but globally. Basically, anyone who was a Chinese speaker and was active on social media was reading this thing and following it. If you were in Wuhan, you were reading it to get a sense of solidarity and to you know, understand what someone else was going through, to get the up-to-the-minute updates on what was happening, because it was really of the moment. Every day, she's posting you know, these 3000 word entries that are explosive, they're unedited, they're raw. And they're just giving you the, you know, the latest medical knowledge, what's happening in hospitals, how many beds are available, what's happening with her, you know, it just became a kind of the go to source for uncensored truth, you know, because they felt that this is a voice they can trust. So as this is going viral over that next week, she starts getting feelers from publishers, agents, uh, newspapers. And all of a sudden, there's a little bit of, I guess, what you could call a feeding frenzy in terms of the global media wanting a piece of this or wanting to get it out there. Mm. And so she came back to me and said, you know what, let's do it. She's like, I have no idea how long it's going to go for. And so I said, okay, I'll do a couple sample chapters. I'll find us an agent. And we agreed that we'd work with the same agent and she would represent the project. And We would pitch it to publishers and see how quickly we could get this out because we really felt time was of the essence in the sense that the world needed to know, uh, not just to understand what was happening in Wuhan, but even more importantly, if this did become a global pandemic, I felt people had their heads in the sand, you know, I mean, here in the United States. Nobody was paying it. It wasn't on your average person's radar at all, what was happening in Wuhan. And so I I just felt it was so vital to get this out as quickly as possible. And so it was very quickly we were able to line up HarperCollins, HarperVIA, which is a subsidiary of HarperCollins. And I started to work at a feverish pace, uh, translating approximately 5,000 words a day. I was working seven days a week, more than 10 hours a day just nonstop. Um, And I finished, the. it's a 400-page book. In Chinese, I think it was uh, 120,000 characters. And what I was doing was I was catching up the fang fang. And so she was writing and I was translating. I started out a month behind her. She began on January 23rd. I began translating on February... 23rd give or take basically a month behind her she finished the diary uh, around march i believe it's march 23rd or march 24th and i finished the translation i think on april 8th so i was just a couple weeks behind her and i was just working at breakneck pace and as i'm translating it i'm seeing the writing on the wall like she's writing about the Chinese New Year's gatherings with tens of thousands of people gathered together for this banquet. And she's saying, are you crazy? There's an infectious virus here. You're having these large scale gatherings. And that day in the newspaper that I'm translating, and I'm reading about Donald Trump's campaign rallies and political rallies that he's holding. And it's like, don't you, I mean, you need to read this. <laughs> and And so it just felt like I couldn't, translate fast enough to get the word out. It was as if I was living in multiple temporalities at the same time. So I'm here in Los Angeles dealing with my reality, but I'm half my day, more than half of my day is spent in Fang Fang's reality, living in this book. But through that book, it's predicting what I'm going through or about to be going through in Los Angeles. So when the project started, she was under lockdown, I was not under lockdown about a month into it I was under lockdown here in Los Angeles you know all the things that she's talking about trying to order groceries online and struggling to get an order I'm I'm doing that with you know Whole Foods <laughs> deliveries and, and you can't get an order because everything's booked I mean all the little details that she's describing I start to kind of I shouldn't say vicariously experience because it was a warped version of what she experienced it was the we were going through a very similar experience but in a different kind of time frame in a different location. And so it was a really unique experience to go through that and to see what I was writing about, not only uh, usually you, you read a work of literature and you can relate to it, you can, maybe it reminds you of things in your life. In this case, it was really predicting every step of what we would go through in this global lockdown. So it was a, truly a unique experience as a translator. And as you kind of also alluded to, I mean, one of the strangest things that happened was if you read the diary, you know that it's not, there are two viruses she talks about. One is the virus of COVID-19. The other is the virus of disinformation and online hate. And she had been a victim of that from pretty early on in the, in the diary. She starts talking about the hate attacks against her, the hate campaign. And as the diary continues, that gets, becomes an increasingly large part of what she discusses in the diary. I think by the end, it almost feels like the last third of the diary, probably 30% of the content, is about the hate campaign against her. And I thought I, I always thought, thought of myself as a very empathetic person. And I, I mean, my heart broke for her as I'm translating this content and I'm trying to put myself in her shoes. And be the best advocate I could for her. But as you know, like becoming a parent or suffering from a terrible disease, there are some things in life you can only really appreciate unless you experience it. And in mid-April, about April 8th, the trolls started to come after me for translating the book. And then I became targeted as part of this conspiratorial campaign. And all of a sudden, I was also vicariously—not vicariously again, but actually experiencing the same uh, kind of death threats and hate and uh, despicable attacks that Fangfang Fang had been subjected to. And so that really gave me a whole other level of appreciation for what she was going through. And you know, and in some ways, it also you know, you try to look at the silver lining of things. There's no great silver lining to getting daily death threats and getting daily attacks like that. But, you know, like as a white man living in America, there's a certain privilege that is invisible that you don't really see. And it's hard sometimes to really understand what, say, African Americans went through for decades, not decades, hundreds of years in this country in terms of the daily violence and discrimination that they they faced. And I kind of looked at it as a a good way to make myself a more, a better ally and a more sympathetic person because it, like I said, you don't really understand it until it comes to your doorstep and it may, and it opens you up and it makes you understand the plight of others in ways that though you think you have the capacity to stand in other people's shoes, I don't think you really can until you experience, you know, and, and a lot of the attacks were racist in, in nature. I can't tell you how many times I was called, uh, White pig or white skin pig, by P. That was one of their favorite uh, comments. You know, calling be called a white nationalist, calling it a Nazi, even though my family's Jewish. I mean, just crazy, uh, crazy attacks. But uh, yeah, I tried to turn it around to make myself more sensitive. Also, to the in the Chinese context, there is a long tradition of the so-called literary inquisition of intellectuals who have been persecuted by the various political campaigns for decades, and. Again, I study this, I teach this, I've been teaching it in my courses and writing about it for decades, and I thought I had a pretty good understanding of how these campaigns function and what it might feel like if you were targeted by some of these campaigns. But again, until you walk in those shoes, it really gives you, just gives you a completely different understanding of the experiential aspect of what it means to go through uh, a campaign like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, we all like to, well, maybe not all of us, but I think almost all of us like to believe that we're tolerant, reasonable, empathetic individuals. But it is, of course, difficult to understand what that must feel like if you don't have any personal experience of it whatsoever.
1: Yeah. Literally thousands of attacks, death threats, hateful, hateful, uh, despicable, often sexualized, racialized language. I mean, there's a it's a form of psychological terrorism that's hard to put into words, and and also hard to articulate what that does to you on a deep psychological level. And so, yeah, it's, it's just really hard to convey. And and we're in an age where this type of attack is increasingly common, both in large scale political campaigns. I mean, think of the troll farms that exist in various countries, but also just online bullying and uh, what kids experience in schools. And so it's it's as Fang Fang indicates, you know it's it's another, it's the second major virus that we are need to need to address uh, right now alongside the pandemic.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people, myself included, would have said, "Okay, well, you are writing this book again with the, with this very sort of simplistic binary situation of." This is a dissident writer who is saying something critical of the regime in a, in a one-party state. And so obviously it is the state apparatus or representatives of the state apparatus writ large that are mobilized against you. But as I was saying earlier, that's a very superficial analysis of the situation. So my question is, well, the people that were trolling you, the people that were doing all these horrible things, that were bullying you, that were sending death threats, what interests do they serve so far as you can tell? How would you characterize those trolls in terms of uh, a context that somebody who does not study Chinese culture or Chinese relations would be able to understand?
1: You know, the type of things they attacked Fang Fang for, and the places where the attacks came from are quite diverse. And so, I mean, we talked about U.S.-China relations being a flashpoint in the attacks, uh, the origins of the virus being a flashpoint. Uh, One of the main talking points they went after was something that really was at the very core of Fang Fang's message, which was truth. She became this voice of the conscience of Wuhan, the voice of truth for so many people, and so that's what they attacked. And they started to accuse her of spreading lies. They called her the witch of lies, and they said that everything she wrote was hearsay and and they tried to break her down by attacking i think what was really at the core of who she really was and it was coming from a variety of different sources mostly using pseudonyms you know sometimes accounts that were clearly created to attack this book so there was one of the trolls I had an account called fung fung goes to jail another was america must die you know and so there there were troll accounts like that There were some VIP social media users. We would call them political influencers. These are people with Weibo accounts that have 8 million, 9 million, 10 million followers. And they would post long essays, sometimes a 5,000-word essay attacking Fang Fang or attacking me. And then if you have 9 million followers, and even a small percentage of them pick up the flag and start sending more attacks, it just gets exponential. You also had state media, such as uh, the Global Times, which is a Government, basically a tabloid newspaper, they were publishing editorials attacking Fang Fang, but it started to get so deep and so complex that uh, pop culture was employed. There were rap songs released about Fang Fang. You know, you, you probably have heard the genre of diss songs where you put someone down in a rap song.
0: I thought they were all that. I, isn't that? Like, <laughs>
1: I thought all raps were diss. <laughs> so there, there were there were multiple anti-FangFang diss songs that were going viral on Chinese uh, social media. There was academia that was employed. So there were book-length academic monographs published and produced overnight and released in April of 2020 that were basically just a hit job trying to attack FangFang. And then there were also official investigations launched, say, in uh, almost a witch hunt into supporters of FangFang. There was a professor named Liang Yanping from Hubei University who was subjected to a trial at her university, and she was actually dismissed from the Chinese Communist Party and banned from teaching for standing up for Fang Fang and speaking out publicly in Fang Fang's support. And so there was this whole array of tools that were unleashed to discredit Fang Fang, to attack her, to silence her supporters, and... Where does this come from? Is it top down? Is it bottom up? I think it was a complex combination of that. Um, Certainly, you could not have an attack so sophisticated, so protracted. I mean, this went on for well over 18 months, which is also very unique in contemporary Chinese literature to have a a campaign like this to to extend so long and to have so many complex facets to it. So certainly, this could not happen with the blessing of at least some government organs or parties, um, which where it came from, who knows, uh, sometimes you would see trolls send out information that would be picked up by official sources and amplified. In other cases, it would come, there would be a more official source that would put some information out and then be picked up by the trolls. And so it's kind of a chicken chicken and the egg scenario. But I think at the bottom of the day, it became a useful political tool for the messaging that needed to be sent out at that time. It also there was a sense, I think, that there was one way to tell the story of the COVID-19 lockdown in Wuhan in 2020. And once a prescription was written for how that story should be told, this is what Xi Jinping refers to as the good China story, the correct, politically correct China story. Once that was written out and they realized that Fang Fang's perspective deviated from that, it needed to be suppressed and then new narratives needed to be introduced to supplant that. And so that's what we started to see. And then because Feng Feng is not a dissident, you can't just throw her in jail. You can't make her disappear. And so instead, this very sophisticated campaign was enacted to gradually, one piece at a time, tear down the myth of Feng Feng and take this writer with such dignity and courage and tear her down one piece at a time, attack her finances, attack her real estate holdings, attack her history of international travel, her a so-called entitlement, attack the authenticity of her statements in the diary, and gradually tear her down and make her a demon in the eyes of the public. And that's what happened. And the people that supported her were silenced or too scared to speak out publicly because they knew that they too would be targeted. And it's just, it's a terrible tragedy of what occurred in the context of the lockdown and this writer of such, again, such integrity, such bravery. I've worked with a lot of writers over the years, and I don't think I know any other writer that could have bared the storm and stood in the center of the hurricane like she did, receiving thousands and thousands of death threats, attacks, slander every day and still keep fighting and still keep speaking truth to power. And she became such a source of inspiration for me and continues to be.
0: How is she doing now? She's doing okay,
1: um, but she hasn't been able to publish in China since all of this happened. And so, I mean, there's no Chinese language edition of Wuhan Diary. And her other books, some have been taken off bookshelves. Others are just not being allowed to be reprinted and redistributed. They haven't been allowing her to publish in magazines or write op-eds or do interviews recently. And so there's a lot of pressure to kind of silence her and not let her story get out. And For a writer, what what do you have but your voice? And that voice, at least for the time being, seems to have been silenced. And so that's one thing I've been doing, is putting a lot of attention to trying to translate her other works to try to make sure that at least globally, she does have a voice and her works can get out there. And so I went back and I finished Soft Burial. That's finished. Uh, I, I translated a second novel by her called The Running Flame. So we're hoping to find a home for those books soon. It's almost an ethical commitment at this point to make sure that her voice flourishes and she has a space to let her ideas or stories or words to get out there to the world.
0: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives: A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.